Well, it's great to be with all of you this weekend. Um, I don't know if you keep up with the news, if you uh, know the ongoings around us, but as of Thursday night, um, perhaps the most unexpected and significant civil war that we have seen in our generation began. Uh, Iron Man and Captain America are no longer friends. So um, the new Captain America movie came out on Thursday night, uh, and the Avengers, who work in unity together for the greater good uh, of mankind, uh, in this particular movie, uh, the title gives it away, they are at war against one another. Uh, And so my boys and I went and watched the movie on Saturday while the ladies enjoyed the woman's Mother's Day tea. And so that was super fun. Now, in case you're panicking uh, that somehow I'm going to give away significant parts of the movie and you haven't yet seen it, I promise you I'm not that diabolical. Um, So the movie will circle back in time uh, when we revisit later on. Uh, But I will tell you this about the movie that never, I think to date, have I seen a movie better display how the enemy works against us than I did in this movie. Watching the enemy in this movie uh, systematically break down and create the realities that caused civil war between the Avengers was a fantastic picture of how our enemy works against us. I remember a scene in particular, doesn't give anything away, don't worry, uh, where half the Avengers were on one side uh, at this airport, the other half on the other side. Uh, they were about to charge one another, and the, the, the director did a brilliant job of uh, giving you that moment where they're all sort of looking at each other like, what do we do? And these are our friends. And they're like, well, they're, they're on the other side of the line right now, so we, we got to do this. And in this moment where you see the great Avengers on one side, and the great Avengers on the other side charging at one another. I remember having a thought, legit, I had this thought in my head. They need a mom. No, really. I, I thought if, if only a mother would just run in between the two charging sides and go, stop! Like in her high heels and business suit with an apron on, some toilet paper off the left shoulder, a diaper right here, and some papers for schoolwork flying as she ran, and go, stop! You guys need to talk this out! Because how often is it not that our moms sit right in the middle of the great civil wars that happen in our home? No wonder we celebrate motherhood. It's a worthy cause to celebrate. We came out of the movie, and uh, my boys get in the car, we're driving home, and this movie was so directly plain and clear about how the enemy creates civil war within the good force of the, of the Avengers. And one of my boys goes, that movie's kind of like our house. <laughs> I'm like, yep, yep, sure is. That movie's just like our house, in fact. And the fact that you saw that, that's pretty awesome, right? Thursday night, I I was here preaching at our first weekend gathering, and I was preaching this very same message that I'm preaching tonight that we're going to enter into, and you will see how it unfolds. 
And uh, right after uh, our sermon time, I had an elders meeting here at Mosaic Church. And so our elders gather once a month to wrestle through and pray through the realities of the direction and, 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 and issues of this church and where God is taking us and what He wants from us and for us. And so these are important spaces. And four and a half minutes before the meeting, I get a phone call. It's my wife, cell phone. I answer it. She's hyperventilating on the other side, but not the good kind, like excited, like I can tell. She's trying to get words out in between the tears, and I'm like, what's the matter? I can't understand you. And she's like, (laughs) and all she could get out of her mouth was, you have to come home now. And I knew, okay, this is not good. This is not good. So I said, "I'm, I'm on my way, and I closed the phone, and I said to our executive pastor, Phil, this one's all yours, Phil. I got to roll out, man. And so I get in the car. I'm driving home, and I see my phone ring again, and it's the home phone number this time. So I'm thinking my wife is calling back perhaps to say, what well, wasn't quite as bad as I thought. It's my nine-year-old son. He's in his room, uh, and, and the door's shut. He's like, you got to come home, my nine-year-old. I'm like, buddy, what's going on? He goes, it's a war zone. I'm like, I'm on my way on my way. So I shoot home and I get there and my wife is on the patio on the couch. She's still crying there. Several of my kids have been dispersed into the different rooms in which they belong. Several of them are hiding from the war zone. Now just to, just to give you some context, I have five, count that again, five hormonal teenagers in my house. Five of them. And then I have two preteens, right? They sit right there waiting to become uh, the two additional hormonal teenagers that I will have in a year from now. Seven at once! Shoot me now! Right now, I didn't mean that. That was a joke. Um, And then I have a nine-year-old who takes all his cues from the hormonal teenagers. He's like a little gremlin with a hand grenade. He runs in, and then he runs up, boom! And then the teenagers go nuts! I'm like, this is my house. My house is a, an, an, an incredible arena of conflict. And, and my kids love Jesus. They really do. But it doesn't matter because there's a lot of conflict, right? So I have thought for a long time, I, you know, how, how do I minimize conflict in my home? How do I help my children? How do I help me? How do I help my wife understand how we cannot be so at each other when these things happen? And so I came up with this concept, right? That I've been sharing with my kids, I kind of try to boil things down into single sentences because that helps me get them, you know? These complicated things, I can't do it. Single sentence, give it to me. And so I came up with a single sentence. I said to my kids, I've been saying it for a while now. When you fight against each other, you fight for the enemy of God. And when you fight for each other, you fight against the enemy of God. So that's what I've been telling them. When you fight against each other, you're fighting for him. When you fight for each other, you're fighting against him. And I thought that'd be a really neat little quote to give them that they can repeat and that would minimize conflict. It will work someday. I know it. I feel it. But what I discovered in my journey is that that little idea that I hoped would be utilized to minimize conflict in my home is in fact not just a neat little idea. It is actually central to the story of God and to our identities as followers of Christ that we would understand it, embrace it, and live in it because it is what God has made us to do, invited us to be, and really challenged us to live like. 
And so as we enter into the story, we realize this neat little quote is much more than just something to minimize conflict in my home. We've been traveling with Paul for quite a while now. We've chronologically been working our way from Genesis chapter 1 uh, for the last decade now. We are in the book of Acts. It's been quite a journey. In the book of Acts, we are chronologically in that place where Paul now is on his third church planting journey. He has just traveled from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea through Troas up into Macedonia. He is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, which is in Achaia, south of Macedonia, also across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus and Galatia, where he had been hanging out. So he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and the context of the letter that he's writing matters, right? Remember that this is uh, what we know as 2 Corinthians, but it's actually the third letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He wrote the first letter called 1 Corinthians. It was a letter of correction in response to a letter he had received from Corinth and word he had gotten from Corinth about the church there derailing. He had spent 18 plus months in Corinth discipling the church there, and when he left, they kind of derailed. So he writes the first letter. The second letter he writes is after a very bad visit he had in Corinth because he went back to visit because they derailed after the first letter. So he thought maybe a personal visit will help. That didn't help. They basically stabbed him in the back, uh, didn't believe anything he said, and bought into the people that were trying to undermine Paul. Very hurtful visit. He writes a second letter that we do not have access to called, in 2 Corinthians, the severe letter. He actually says when he first wrote it, he regretted writing it. He said, I'm glad I wrote it because it has had some impact. But when I first sent it, I'm like, I can't send this. But he sent it anyways. Out of that severe letter, there was some movement. This is now the third letter he's writing. But the context in this third letter remains very difficult. The church in Corinth continues, no matter how often Paul visits or sends letters, continues to buy into the people that are stirring things up and continue to believe things about Paul that are ridiculous. And so Paul is writing this third letter, 2 Corinthians, in response to some word he got again from Corinth, and this letter he's writing to prepare them for a visit he wants to do, but this time he says, I'm not coming visiting again until you read this letter and get some things sorted out, because I'm not going to have another terrible visit with you. So he's writing into a people group that honestly, a church, honestly, he should give up on. I mean, I would have, to be honest, there'd be no third letter. I would have gone, you know what, church in Corinth can sink and die. I don't really care anymore. Paul had given more of his heart and soul to this church than any other ministry to date. And they were the ones that stabbed him in the back the most. And yet he unrelentingly writes. And the letter of 2 Corinthians begins, if you were here, you remember a couple weeks ago, this way. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. An extraordinary start to a letter written in the context that it is written into, to a people group like the Corinthians, saying to him, them, listen, yes, you stab me in the back. Yes, you dislike me. Yes, you hate me. Yes, you're ridiculous. Yes, everything I pour into you doesn't seem to go anywhere. But grace and peace to you from God. It was extraordinary that that grace and peace that Paul was giving them was not grace and peace from Paul. It was grace and peace from God. And we unpacked during that season uh, or during that message the idea that God affected such grace on Paul's life that he had grace of God to give. 
and we are in the same boat, encountering the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's grace lavished upon us when we have no business receiving it, in that beauty and in that recognition, we have grace to give, not our own, but God's. Then after we unpacked that, the very next week, we read as Paul defended himself with the Corinthians, why he didn't come visit when he did, and why he did that, and why he didn't do this, and why he sent that letter, and he had no reason to defend himself with these ridiculous people, but he did, and we watched grace expand. Grace moved from God's grace given to Paul to God's grace in Paul given to the Corinthians to Paul himself affecting demonstrative grace to the Corinthians. Paul demonstrated his own grace toward them. And we watched grace expand from God's grace to Paul to God's grace from Paul to Paul's grace to the Corinthians. And now, in the next beautiful moment in the book of 2 Corinthians, we watch Paul once again expand the beauty of grace. But in this expansion, it moves from God's grace to Paul and God's grace through Paul and Paul's grace to the church in Corinth, to the church in Corinth being invited in to this extraordinary journey of grace. And in so doing, Paul invites us also into the journey. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided at the door, that is page 666. If you are using a smart device or one of your Bibles, it is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. So Paul has just spent the latter part of chapter 1, early part of chapter 2, explaining so many things to the Corinthians, demonstrating his grace toward them, even though he had no need to explain himself or defend himself. And now he says this in verse 5, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. I love the start of this. Because right here, Paul immediately gives us a context that we can connect to and relate to. Paul starts off by saying, I want to acknowledge something to you. There is this person or people, in this case, a person we'll see very specifically. There is this person or people that have affected pain on Paul. You understand? They've hurt Paul. He's saying it. When this person hurt me, they hurt you. I know it. Let's just, let's just get together, circle up and say, did they hurt you? Sure did. Did they hurt me? Sure did. Oh, they hurt us. They hurt us. See, Paul is not brushing past that. Well, let's, let's just pretend the bad stuff didn't happen. No, 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 no. There is pain involved in this. Just a side note here. You will notice this as we unpack this passage. There is no need for grace until there is pain affected. We don't need to give grace when there's no pain. When last have you gone like this? Oh gosh, hey, you just treated me so well, I think I'm gonna give you some of my grace. I mean, I just feel so loved by you right now. I'm so overwhelmed by your love for me. I think I need to show you some grace. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, you just took me on the best date of my entire life. You are the best spouse I've ever had. I'm gonna show you some grace. No, no, grace is not uh, called for. It is not necessary until someone affects pain. It is when we are hurt. It is when our expectations are unmet. 
It is when our sensibilities are offended. It is when our rights are violated. It is when our uh, things that we deserve are not given. It is when somebody does something diabolical to affect negative realities in our life. It is when pain is present that grace is required. So Paul says, this person I'm about to talk about, oh, he hurt me, no doubt about that. And not to be too severe about this, but he hurt you too. We begin there. Grace is required when pain is present. And so we know the context we're stepping into. Watch this. Paul says this. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So here's what Paul is saying. There is this person in the midst of the Corinthian church that has affected pain on Paul and has affected pain on the people of the church. In response to that pain, there were boundaries set in place. You can no longer be part of this community in the way that you have been. We are going to push now boundaries into place so you can't hurt us anymore. They say the majority had a punishment for this person. This is the language Paul is using. Is it inappropriate for us when someone is affecting pain on us to put boundaries in place so we can protect ourselves from being hurt ongoingly? Is it inappropriate? You guys are guessing, aren't you? Like, do I say yes? Then I'm not godly. Do I say no? Then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll just sit here long enough until Renault answers the question. So allow me to answer for you. It is not wrong to put boundaries in place. In fact, it is totally appropriate. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about putting boundaries in place with a man that was in the church that was living in uh, active sinfulness and as an agenda using that active sin to try to convince the church that what he was doing was right. And so he was negatively impacting the body of Christ. And so Paul said, you need that guy to be outside a community until he wakes up so that he will restore to community in the journey. So there is an appropriateness to putting boundaries in place when someone is affecting pain on us ongoingly. But what Paul is saying here is this. The punishment that we affected on this person, we did as a majority, and that's great, and it has now caused the appropriate experience of sorrow in this person. But it is time now to go back and forgive this person and comfort them uh, lest their sorrow become excessive. See, the problem isn't boundaries. The problem is when those boundaries become a means of self-preservation, a means of vengeance, or a means of staying safe from a person that's hurtful. That's not appropriate. We don't put boundaries in place so we can keep ourselves safe from them. We put boundaries in place so that it would affect them in such a way that would bring about restoration, redemption, and uh, a redeemed story at the end. And he's saying, the guy, it's time to go back and comfort him. Now, who is this guy we're talking about? Well, the truth is we have no idea. The problem is there's so many options in Corinth. I mean, it could be anyone. It could be the guy in 1 Corinthians that Paul was talking about. He said, look, I, I asked you to push him out of community for a season. He's been out of community now. I've heard word. Uh, it's time to bring him back. It could be him. And if it's him, that fits this context. Yeah. It could also be the people that were stirring things up against Paul in the church of Corinth. That would fit this context beautifully. The people that caused me pain, they also caused you pain. It is very possible 
that the church in Corinth is feeling all proud of the fact that they've taken the people that stirred things up for Paul and they've kicked them out and there's one guy in particular apparently who was probably the stirrer of all stirrers and they've pushed him out and they're saying to Paul, yeah, after what he did to you, he ain't ever coming back. And Paul's saying, hold on, hold on. You're not protecting me by keeping him out. That's not how this works, boys and girls. How this works is that we affect forgiveness and comfort even when we have been hurt. Not to ignore the pain, not to say it was okay, but to say our goal is always restoration, redemption, forgiveness. So he says, it's time for you guys to go back and forgive and comfort this person. Look what he says here. So you should forgive him. So I beg you, verse 8, to reaffirm your love for him. There's the beautiful key. See, what, what are we talking about here? See, this is the expansion of a, a beautiful little word that starts with a G. We've been dealing with it for a while now. It's called grace. This is just an active demonstration of grace, isn't it? Somebody hurt you. They hurt me too. Okay. You're trying to protect me from them. You're trying to protect you from them. I'm not sure who you're trying to protect anymore. But here's the deal. We get to walk out with grace. Did God not show Paul grace? Yes. Did God not show the church in Corinth grace? Yes, through Paul. Did Paul not show the church in Corinth grace? Yes. Is Paul now asking the church in Corinth if somebody has hurt you or me or both of us, it is time for us to engage now with that person to reaffirm our love for them. Because when we put boundaries in place to protect ourselves and the church from the consequences of someone's foolishness, those boundaries are never meant to stay in place simply as an active way to keep ourselves safe or to be vengeful toward the person. They are only to be in place until such a time that we can begin a journey of restoration. We are always reaffirming our love for everyone because even when we are putting boundaries in place, we are doing it out of an act of love. And if we're not, we're wrong. If we're not, the boundary is inappropriate. The boundary should be an active act of love. You are foolish. That's negatively affecting you and us. And that's not good for you or us or the gospel. So, eh, boundary. And we'll keep reaffirming our love for you until such a time that you reconcile. Do not let their pain become excessive. Look what he says here. Anyone whom you, verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive indeed. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Paul is saying, listen, in view of the mercies of God, we also are called and invited now to be gracious toward those that have affected us negatively. Maybe it's your children, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's who knows. But we are given the privilege of stepping in with grace. And when we step in with grace, then we see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out and experienced. And, and remember, I just want to be clear, biblical grace is not simply an active tolerance of all things, right? And he's already said that a number of times, but let me remind you of that. We do not misuse grace by saying what grace is, is that whatever you're doing, whatever you've done, I just ignore it. I just excuse it. I, I just pretend it's not there. That's what the culture considers to be grace. The culture says, if you're going to be gracious toward me, you'll just excuse whatever I'm doing. You will just never judge me. 
Listen, guys, tolerance is not the absence of judgment and the activation of grace. Tolerance can be as horrid and unloving as anything on the planet. If I am acting foolishly, if I am behaving in a manner that is bad for me, bad for my family, bad for my marriage, bad for the church, bad for the gospel, and you tolerate that, you do not love me. You hate me. See, the relationship we ought to have is the kind of relationship where when I'm being a fool, you have the courage to step in and say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be gracious to you now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gently, or if I have to, by force, pull you out of your insanity. In this world, we have these two spaces we tend to live in. One we call tolerance, and one we call intolerance. Now, the only two spaces that we tend to live in, they're both easy spaces and both demonic in their own way, if we live only in them. Watch this. Tolerance. How easy is that? You just tolerate everything. That way, you never offend anyone, and nobody dislikes you. Isn't that fun? How nice for you. How nice for me. I tolerate you, you tolerate me, we're just tolerant, it's beautiful. You know what intolerance is? Intolerance is just this, you hate everybody except for a few people that hate the same everybody as you and they all like you a lot. <laughs> so you're still super liked, me, 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 we all have the same little billboard, we hate you, you hate them too, I hate them too, high five, boom, I'm loved right here baby. So intolerance is demonic, intolerance is demonic when left to itself. Grace is neither tolerance nor intolerance. Grace is the perfect convergence of both those worlds. Grace is the ability to have the kind of relationship with one another where when we are acting foolishly, we have the courage to step in, but when we step in, we do not step in in judgment. We step in in gentleness and in love to gently and lovingly and sometimes firmly say, I love you. You are acting foolishly. I'm going to help you stop. Because it's not good for you. It's not good for me. It's not good for the church. It's not good for the gospel. It's not good for the glory of God. So we're not going to do it. Because you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Grace is actively engaging in one another's lives with no self-agenda. Everything I do, if I'm doing it for your good, even if it's hard for you to hear or hard for you to swallow, that is grace. Tolerance and intolerance is all about me. Grace is all about you because I have been shown the grace of God in the things I've done. So, Paul says to us, since God has shown me grace and I've given you God's grace and I've given you my grace, now it is your turn to give your grace to the brother who has pained you. And that would be a grace, great place to stop, wouldn't it? Oh, grace, how good. If we give each other grace, would that not create more peace among us? Would not, that not create a better church experience? Would that not create a better family? I mean, go home, imagine I come home, my kids, all eight of them, just graciously gracing upon each other. Oh, just fighting for each other. Dad, I was, you know, they were a jerk to me, but I fought for them, Dad. Dad, Dad, she treated me badly, but don't worry, Dad, I lavished grace upon her. Went really well. Look, she's so happy now. I would die. <laughs> See, when we affect grace, it's a good thing. But then Paul does something insane, beautifully insane, actually. He adds this one last verse to this little paragraph. And when he adds this verse, it changes everything. See, it elevates grace now from something that's 
a good thing to do for the betterment of the community of God and the betterment of a home and bringing some glory to God to something so urgent, something so absolutely necessary, central to who we are, that we need to take it to a whole new level. One verse changes everything. Watch this. Look what he says next. Look at this. So everything I've forgiven, I've forgiven for your sake in the presence of Christ. And he says this, so that, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. That is such an odd verse right there, isn't it? I mean, you'd think at the end of this paragraph, we will do this and forgive each other so that the peace of God might reign in our hearts forever. Wouldn't that just fit right there? So that we together would be unified as Christ prayed for us. That would fit. But he goes like this. No, 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 no. I want you to understand from verse 1 of 2 Corinthians to now, all this grace I've been showing you, demonstrating to you, calling you into, the reason it matters that we do this is because we know the design of our enemy and we will not be outwitted by his design. So that begs a question, doesn't it? What is the design of our enemy? Most of you go, I, I think I've got a good idea. I thought so too. But I had to be reminded again. See, what we think, I believe, at least what I thought is, that the enemy wants to shame you. He wants to shame you. The enemy, he wants to humiliate you. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. The enemy wants to scare you. He wants you to live in fear. Oh yeah, so he's going to bring fear, so you're fearful. Oh, he, he, he wants you to be angry. That's what he wants. He wants you to be angry. So he's going to stir anger around you. See, the enemy wants us to feel bad. He wants us to be ill-equipped. He wants us to be impotent in our ability to carry the gospel. He wants us not to be happy. Folks, that's not what the enemy wants for us, none of that. He couldn't care less if you're shamed. He couldn't care less if you're scared. He couldn't care less if you're discouraged. He couldn't care less if you're humiliated. He does not want you humiliated or scared or shamed. Here's what he wants for you. Jesus said it, I didn't. John chapter 10, verse 10. Listen to this. The word only is actually in the sentence saying, this is the only thing he wants for you. Here it is, ready? John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus speaking. The thief comes only. Here it is. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. There is no to shame, to hurt, to make you feel bad, to get you discouraged, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then he says, I came that, I may have, that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I want to be clear with you guys because this is what Paul is trying to do as the Spirit of God inspires him. The enemy of God wants you and I dead. We should not take that lightly. He wants us dead. He wants our marriages dead. He wants our lives dead. He wants our souls dead. He wants any work of God dead. He wants us dead. He wants our families dead. He does not want you shamed. Now, he will use shame to destroy you. He will use fear to destroy you. 
He will use humiliation to destroy you. He will use anger and malice and strife and envy and jealousy and anything else he can, vengeance, to destroy you and I. He will do that. In fact, he will use good things to destroy us if he has to. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're shamed. He cares that you're dead. He doesn't care if your marriage is hard. He cares that it's dead. First Peter uh, first letter Peter writes to the church, listen to what he writes about this enemy of ours. First Peter chapter 5, listen to this. First Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, what? Seeking someone to shame? No, 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 no. To scare? No, 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 no. To devour. That's a horrid way of being eaten to devour. Our enemy wants us dead. And here's what Paul just did. I want you to catch this. If you catch nothing else, catch this. This is extraordinary. This has been a paradigm shift for me, even this week. Paul just said this to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want you to be gracious to one another. And the reason I want you to be gracious toward one another is because we are well aware of the design of the enemy to kill us. And so, so that we are not outwitted by his plans to kill us, we are going to be gracious toward one another. Do you know what that means grace is? Grace is not simply a good idea that allows us to have a better place, a better home, a better marriage, a better church. Grace is our warfare. It is our war cry. It is our defiance of death. It is our means to stand in the face of the enemy's schemes to destroy us and say, never! Because I have grace and I will give grace. And every time I give grace, you lose. That's how it works. Do you know, that what, you know what grace is? Think about it. If you actually put your mind to this this week, you will be amazed as I have been. Grace is the antidote to shame. I'll say that again. Grace is the antidote to shame. We all have shame in us, but when someone affects deep and beautiful grace on us, it is the antidote to shame. Grace is the antidote to fear. Grace is the antidote to fear. Grace is the antidote to anger and malice and strife. Grace is the antidote to jealousy and envy. In fact, the more I've looked at grace, the more I've realized it is the antidote to every horrible and terrible tool that the enemy utilizes to sink us and destroy us. Grace is an extraordinarily powerful thing. And where did we discover this? Because folks, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, captivated by the Lord of disobedience, children of wrath chasing after our flesh and hating God, what was it? that was the antidote to our sinfulness and death. It was grace, for he has lavished upon us his grace. And now he says, since you have been lavished by grace, now go and lavish my grace upon one another and lavish the grace you have in you upon one another so that in unity you, the church, can lavish my grace on the world. Not ignoring the foolishness, not excusing the foolishness, but never standing in intolerance of anyone.
engaging in gentleness and beauty with one another and with the world to effectively bring the antidote of all the terrible things the enemy has for us. When we fight against one another, we fight for the enemy. I said that in the beginning, but it holds far more depth now, doesn't it? When we fight against one another, graceless toward each other, we fight for the enemy. But when we fight for each other by affecting grace toward each other, then we fight against the enemy. Grace is our act of war against death and sin and evil. Grace is our act of war against sin and death and evil. And we shall not be outwitted by the design of the enemy when we live lives of grace. And when will you need to be gracious? You ready for this? So fun. When someone hurts you. Grace is not called for when no one's hurting you. When your spouse hurts you, when they don't meet your expectations, when they don't consider your needs, when they don't treat you as you are entitled, when they don't actively give you grace, and they pain you, well, there you go. Then you have before you the opportunity to act warfully against death and sin and Satan. When your children treat you badly, oh, and they will. When your parents treat you badly, oh, and they will. When your co-workers treat you badly, when your friends treat you badly. Do you know what Paul's just given us? This gift. Oh, you, got just, you just got treated badly? Well, praise God. Well, praise God, because you have an opportunity to affect the greatest and most extraordinary warfare against the enemy. You have an opportunity to be gracious. And what if you fail? Because half of you are thinking that. No, actually, probably all of you. You're going, oh, that sounds awesome, but I scream at my kids. Yeah, so do I. I know. What happens when your spouse pushes the right button and you're like, oh, well, there goes grace. Have we just handed ourselves over to the enemy? Have we just said, oh, well, he wins? No, 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 no. Watch this. Grace is ever-present in two spaces. When you become gracious, you are at war against the enemy. And when you miss the boat and you are graceless and shame comes and fear comes, where do you go? Where do you go to defeat the enemy? Well, let me tell you. You go right back to the gospel. You go right back to God and you say this to him. Thank God for your grace. Thank God for your grace on a man like me who could not muster up a moment in time to be gracious when the opportunity presented itself. And then guess what happens? The enemy is as defeated in our entry back into the gospel as he would have been if we were gracious because of the gospel. There is no lose for us until we either are, grace or are both graceless and do not run back to grace. Grace is yours and mine in Christ. And as we are full of grace, 
because we are obsessed with the gospel, we can affect grace obsessively because we are actively engaged in warring against the design of the enemy. Oh, that grace would mark our stories. Grace from Christ to us and grace from us to one another and our grace as a church together to the world that so desperately needs to see not tolerance, not intolerance, but grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for this extraordinary and beautiful reminder of the power of grace, grace given to us, undeserved, grace given through us by your power, and our grace growing in you, given to one another, so that together we can be gracious to the world, gracious to the world. God, thank you for reminding us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Boy, it sure feels like it is, God, I'm just going to be honest. It's flesh and blood standing right in front of me when they're screaming at me. It's flesh and blood disobeying me right in front of me. It's flesh and blood stealing my rights and entitlements. It's flesh and blood not meeting my expectations. It's flesh and blood that looks at me that way, and it's flesh and blood that talks to me that way. So it sure feels like flesh and blood that's against me. Would you rise up in me? Would you rise up in us and remind us that it, it is not flesh and blood that we battle? but it is powers and principalities in dark places. It is the schemes of our enemy, the devil. And it is his desire not to shame us, not to scare us, not to humiliate us, but to kill us. May we not be outwitted by what we know he does, for we know his design, but may we instead declare actively an act of war on him by choosing to be gracious upon gracious upon gracious when what we want to be is angry and jealous and full of strife. God, help us not to war against each other. Help us not to fight against each other and in so doing fight for our enemy, but help us instead to fight for each other, especially when we hurt each other so that we would fight against our enemy, the devil. For this, we will need you. We will need you to draw near to us and draw us near to you. We will need you to fix our minds on Christ. We will need you to fix our eyes on Christ. We will need you to help us in our diligence and our disciplines to be obsessed with the gospel every day, preaching it to ourselves and to one another so that we are never far from the acute awareness of how much grace you have lavished upon us, so that out of that awareness we might be gracious to those around us. And when we fail, we will need you to Shout loudly to our souls, not to run from you in shame, but to run to you in desperation, recognizing that your grace is sufficient for all things we have done. May you make us men and women and children of grace so that we would be warriors of light and we would overcome the darkness. On your behalf, as ambassadors of Christ, servants of you, most high God, empowered not by ourselves but by your Spirit. Make it so, we pray. 
in Jesus' name.